that's a perfect example of a third sector need in the sense that the private sector isn't going to be going out there training on how to prevent child abuse and the government isn't having many programs on how to prevent child abuse and so but it's a social need that's not being met and so again it's another example of where the third sector the social sector comes in good example and then shelby good morning Okay, so I found an article on um, the William S. Walton Charitable Trust organization, and they're just saying that they're giving another round of grants to organizations and schools um, around the community in Salem, Oregon. The applications for these grants are due the 30th, and William was a financier that was born in Salem and lived there until he died. He was really involved in the community, and when he died, he left the bulk of his estate to this trust fund, which has been a source to support many of the local charities hospitals, schools for more than 50 years. These grants are awarded to 501c3 organizations for general purposes, and they range from $1,000 to $5,000. And these include like support of the youth and families, community health and safety, culture and the arts, and environment education. And then I did find some like past examples of like where these grants went to. So like $3,000 has gone to the Assistance League of Salem to support the Operation School Bell program. Money has gone to Liberty House to purchase two laptops for pediatricians to use during examinations. To Lord and Shriver Conservancy to partially fund phase one of the restoration of the home garden them in like Oregon Symphony Association to support a concert for of third and fifth graders and then like a counseling center to provide professional mental health services to families. So even though this um, may be like a um, smaller grants going to like local charities and organizations, I just thought it was interesting, especially since it goes to schools and like I really like the line about the orchestra just for the like third through fifth graders. I just think it's a good cause. So. Cool. Very good. So if you, and I, I think um, even like with this whole topic of fund development, and I appreciate what, what Shelby brought up of, if you're running a nonprofit, chances are you're doing some sort of fund development. And a lot of times you say, oh, there's no money out there. But what Shelby pointed out is, okay, here's a typical call for proposals. So a foundation has money and they send out these call for proposals. And I think what, what Shelby did was, was perfect of like, oh, okay, what, what is this foundation? Where is it located? And more importantly, what have they funded in the past? And if you're running a nonprofit, you could go into these foundations and say, well, what do they fund? And you're like, oh, they, they bought this organization computers? I didn't know you could raise money for computers. And so then you go and you put together a proposal for, hey, we need you know, five new computers for our organization. You write a proposal for $10,000 to get computers, whereas you had thought, how am I ever, you know, we're just working on computers that are like eight years old and we're dying when you could be submitting a grant. And so a lot of times when you think of fund development, most of us don't know what could be possibly funded. And so it's just going onto these websites and saying, well, what is this organization? Oh, it's located right here in Bloomington. They only want to support Bloomington activities and doing the research and then realizing, hey, there's actually money out there, but it's sort of digging a little bit to find out where it is and then realizing, hey, our organization fits this perfectly. So, but we'll be talking about fund development in a couple weeks. This week or today, we're going to finish up talking on leadership. And I've invited Dr. Woodring to give this lecture, and, and he teaches an entire class 
in SPIA on leadership, the principles and practices of modern leadership. So this could even give you a taste of what, if you're interested in leadership and wanting sort of a full scope of it, his class is the one to take. He's also the director of the undergraduate programs office at SPIA, and so he knows everything you need to know about SPIA and where you're going with your SPIA degree. And even if you're not a SPIA major, you might see what he's saying and be like, huh, I think I need to check out SPIA. So, Dr. Woodring. All right, thank you very much, Professor Fulton. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. All right, so, kind of an overview of what we're gonna do today. There's some common questions about leadership that generally come up. I'm gonna answer those kind of in, in brief real fast as a way to jump in. And then each of you is facing uh, a certain dilemma. You are the CEO of an organization called Project U. And right now there's something that you are dealing with, some sort of issues, some sort of crisis that's personal to you and your organization that you are trying to figure out. And we're gonna try to figure that out together through the course of this class, through the different various lenses of leadership. I'm gonna define leadership, talk to you about it as the importance of the roles of visioning, values, relationships, and action. Over the course of the class, hopefully we will have successfully found a way to lead some change and solve that dilemma that you're facing at Project U. So some questions that commonly come up about leadership. Why are fewer people stepping up to be leaders? It's tricky. It's not an easy thing to do. People are concerned, you know, not sure how to get involved. They don't want to take a step, take a chance, put themselves out there. You know, especially in the world we live in anymore with social media that's right or so rife for criticism so easily, so readily. People don't want to step up and, and take challenges. What does it say about our generation? And should we and how we should be taught and trained? What do you think it says about your generation? So I open the question. So why do you think yes? They're afraid. They're afraid. Why are they afraid? Because the challenges may seem too much for them, or something that they can't bear or handle. Okay. Do you feel like it's a fair statement that your that your generation is uh, less likely to step up and, and be a leader? Yes, Jordan. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure if our generation is less likely, but I, could, <clears throat> I guess that one reason why it might be uh, is kind of related to social media. The fact that we have so many different outlets um, to explore our interests. That, like, you know, with Netflix, you can watch a documentary on, like, child abuse in Africa, and then you can try to, like, watch something about sustainability and how the like, animal agriculture is so wrong. And so you're kind of confused by all these different stimuli, stimuli and when you don't really know what to pursue to become, like, the expert in one thing compared to, you know, this broad array different things. So what I'm hearing you say, there's so much out there, you almost can get paralyzed because you don't know which way to go. Yeah. And, and as you start going down one path, again, because there's so much information out there, you can begin to kind of second guess yourself, and am I doing this right? Exactly. Is that what I'm hearing? Okay. You're you next. Yes, sir. What's your name? Josiah? Yeah. Uh, I think as a generation, we're being taught more to collaborate than to have one, like, like title leader. Um, we, like in all of our college classes, we do more group work. We don't have somebody that's in charge of our group. Um, and even like student organizations don't really often have presidents anymore. They just have like titles that split the work evenly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so the historical conception of, of one person being in a leadership role or defining it as a, as a position is, is different for, for your generation. Okay? And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Yes? I could be wrong here, but I feel like people nowadays are like, getting more motivated just because I feel like everything, like whether getting into a certain school or getting in, like a specific um, job is more competitive now. And so 
I feel like people work harder, but even though it's competitive, like they might get scared and like afraid of like not being able to get that, so they might want to step up to be a leader, I guess. So it's kind of like both of us. Sure. I, what, what, what I'm hearing you say, Shelby, is that uh, things are really competitive, so if people want to be selected for things, they almost have to uh, accumulate and acquire a lot of different activities so that you, you're doing a lot of different things, but maybe um, not taking on a leadership role in, in depth in any one. Is that, yeah. is that kind of fair? Other, other thoughts about this? We'll kind of move on to some other common questions. Other common questions. What kind of leader is the most appropriate one for our current society? What are your thoughts? Yeah. I would say you need all types of leaders. There's not a specific most like most effective leader throughout the world. I think there is each leadership plays a good part in each job description and any any work task in the organization. Uh-huh. Okay, so it takes multiple kinds of leaders to be successful. Okay, other thoughts? Yeah. Abby. We talked on Tuesday about how everybody has different personality traits and it's learning how to take those and cultivate those into a leadership style that they can, can then best serve the, the people that the organization is serving or the people that the government is serving. And so I think it's just learning how to kind of work your leadership style to best serve the people. This ability to be, to be somewhat reflective. So what I'm hearing is that there's not one particular way. And we're going to come back to this in the class after we kind of walk through uh, some different perspectives on leadership. How does having to do both manager and leadership role in the same job affect a person's leadership abilities? Ideally, it shouldn't. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this as we go along uh, throughout the class as well. And one question I get commonly is, why doesn't SPIA offer more opportunities for classes that for physically applying leadership, actually doing leadership? And that's the, the shameless plug for my class, which is V260, Principles and Practices of Modern Leadership. Carly took it last spring. You had a great time, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, we do a lot of case study in that class because it's, uh, it doesn't help to just think about what leadership is. It's actually important to really apply it, which is what we're going to do today. You're going to apply it throughout the entire entirety of our next, oh, 60 minutes together. I'm going to send these around, and I'm going to ask you to work here real quick. All right, so as I said, you are each the CEO of Project U. Project U is an organization, a nonprofit organization committed to developing the best version of you. Right now, Project U is approaching a key decision point that will no doubt impact the future of the organization. So this, this challenge is going to require the leadership of Project U to evaluate your values and priorities, assess your relationships with key partners, and develop a strategic action plan in order to achieve a positive outcome. So what I would like you all to do right now is to write down that big, on, on the, the first page here, where the first page is the one that looks like this, it's got the two big boxes, and it says current dilemma summary for Project U. I'd like you to write down a dilemma or, or an issue that you're facing that you'd like to work through over the next 60 minutes, and we're gonna kind of do that. So think about think about that dilemma, take about uh, a minute and, and write it down. So it could be a problem you're facing very personally in your life that's gonna take you, you know, over the next three weeks, or maybe it's something that's, you're at a crossroads thinking about maybe you're a senior and you're gonna graduate, and you, know, you wanna go to graduate school, do you wanna get a job, where you want to live, you know, things like that. Think about those types of dilemmas. Maybe you're in a relationship and you're, you know, trying to figure out if you want to pull the trigger on breaking up or, you know, committing for the long haul here. You know, that's a dilemma you're facing. Well, you got to think about it. So uh, we're going to take a look at this leadership through the lens of, of you and project you. So write down the dilemma that you are dealing with right now. All right. So you've got your dilemma. You've thought about it. This is something we're going to try to solve over the course of our class. But I want you to kind of just put that aside for a few minutes because we're going to spend a couple minutes actually defining leadership and looking at it from some historical theories on 
on leadership and trying to define it a little bit more of a, of a modern sense. So we're going to revisit this dilemma often, but we're going to have interludes of information starting now. All right, so there are four historical common theories of leadership that come out. This comes from a leadership scholar named Ron Heifetz. These four historical <coughs> theories are the great man theory, this, this notion that uh, a person's ability to rise to power is, is predestined by the heroic traits that this person possesses. It has nothing to do with how they respond to situations. They just have these traits internally that when they were born, they were born as leaders. And I'm sure you've you know, oftentimes people summarize this in t-shirts or bumper stickers. Leaders are born, not made. They just emerge amongst us and, you know, for, for, for no other reason. So there's this historical theory that uh, the great man theory that the rise of power is rooted in a heroic set of personal talent, skills, or physical traits. There's a second kind of traditional theory, and this is summarizing lots and lots of leadership theories into these four different uh, perspectives. That's this situationalist perspective, which is that the times produce the person, and that people who have people with the skills to match the problems of the time emerge to prominence when they otherwise wouldn't. To give you some context on the people will say that you know the, the time surrounding the American Revolution are what gave us Thomas Jefferson and, and John Adams, and that perhaps had there not been this movement towards American independence, they may have just continued on with their lives. John Adams is a lawyer in Massachusetts, and you know Thomas Jefferson lived the agrarian lifestyle in, in Virginia, and George Washington would be just at Mount Vernon enjoying his life. But but the notion that the times, the, this push towards American independence, called these people forward. So the, the situation had something to do with it. The next historical theory is contingency theory, which emerges. It's kind of similar to the situationalist view. It's the appropriate style of leadership is contingent upon the requirements of the particular situation. Given that it sounds like what maybe you had talked about on, on Tuesday, what Abby was mentioning is that you know, within different situations, different styles are, are necessary or come forward. And then kind of a fourth, a fourth view is this notion of a transactional leadership style. That is how individuals gain influence and sustain it over time. So in a democracy, people in authority influence constituents, but that constituents also influence them. There's this transaction. So you know, we're in the midst of an election right now, and you can see that the primary candidates are saying things to pander to their base, to mobilize those folks actually come out and vote, this is kind of almost transaction. If I say this thing, I'm going to get this group of people to want to vote for me. Or if this group of people suddenly decides they're going to have a, a certain position, then I need to shift. There's a kind of this transaction between, you know, that's kind of the most obvious way uh, to look at it in democracy, this transaction between the people and the leadership. Oftentimes, though, I think sometimes in this little self-criticism of it is that we within the democracy don't always recognize the power that we have in influencing our leaders. We are kind of, you know, take a step back. So this is just to kind of create some sort of broad-based historical ways of looking at uh, history, either this great man theory or the situation creates the, creates the leader. But moving forward into a little bit more of a, a modern definition that I, I like to use from Ron Heifetz is that leadership is an activity. And what he means by this is it's the work that's required to actually get a community to face its problems, to address conflicts and the values that people hold, and to try to minimize that gap between the values that somebody stands for and what it is that they're actually wanting to do. So a, a key component that if you start looking at it this way, rather than leadership as a situation that's, been, that, that, that's out there or having a set of skills that you're just born with, but you start to look at leadership as activity, it starts to begin to empower people to have some agency to think, think that I can actually have an impact over the situation at hand. I can actually start to do things. So the emphasis becomes 
on creating some clarity to what matters most. What are the values that we hold? What are the things that we care about? So if you start thinking about this within the context of an organization, you start thinking about why does this organization exist in the first place? And then getting people to focus on why that organization is there and then beginning to take actions and, and working in accordance with those values. So there's an emphasis on clarity and articulation to a community's guiding values. And then when the values are clarified, when you actually know what you want to do, the choices become a lot clearer. And you're going to see this through the lens of yourself here over the next few minutes. So when you start thinking about what really matters, it's then having leadership as the activity of having the courage to actually act in accordance with your values, with the mission of your organization or the purpose for why you're there. So we start to think about things as, as an activity. So I'd like to have a volunteer who would be willing to read this paragraph out loud. Okay, so Anastasia is gonna, our, our brave volunteer, and what I would like you to do as she reads it out loud is to think about or to jot down the words that stand out to you. This is the definition of leadership from the Higher Education Research Institute. So Anastasia, if you could read it out loud for us. A leader is not necessarily a person who holds a formal position of leadership or who is perceived as a leader by others. Rather, a leader is one who is able to affect positive change for the betterment of others, the community, and society. All people, in other words, are potential leaders. Moreover, the process of leadership cannot be described simply in terms of behavior of an individual. Rather, leadership involves collaborative relationships that lead to collective action, grounded in the shared values of people who work together to affect positive change. Thank you, Anastasia. All right, so what uh, jumps out to you? What are some pauses or statements that jump out to you in that paragraph? Yes, Joe. A uh, leader is one who is able to affect positive change for the betterment of others. Okay. Why does that stand out to you? Just, it kind of, for me, it summarizes what a leader should be and what a leader does in the modern day. So uh, effective leaders move us towards some sort of positive outcome. They actually improve the situation. Okay. Other thoughts? What else stood out to you in this paragraph? Brandon, you had your hand up. Yeah, uh, two things, collaborative relationships, so working with a lot of other people, and then collective action. So it's not just the per like that one person going and doing these things, it's building relationships and working as a group to go out and perform. Yeah, leadership, especially going back with what we were just talking about a moment ago, with leadership is an activity that is requiring us to actually inherently work with other people. We, we are, you know, a leader is not just existing in a vacuum, that, that's just individual choices making decisions. I mean, leadership is actually mobilizing people and influencing people and uh, developing, leveraging relationships towards some sort of positive outcome. So some things that really stand out to me, this notion of the collaborative relationships leading towards collective action that we have to actually do something. We can't just all agree that this is a problem. Now it's thinking through, okay, what is it that we're going to do? I mean, oftentimes effective leadership, those choices are grounded in the values of the organization. So if you're thinking about a nonprofit organization that you work for, what are the values, what's the mission of the organization for which you work, and then that helps clarify the types of choices you're gonna make with the, all the purpose of moving towards some sort of positive change. So you can kind of crystallize this down into almost a, a, a formula, if you will, the three components to help define leadership. First, the notion that there are relationships, that there are other people who are required to be mobilized to affect some sort of positive change. But the notion of shared values, that you all are coming together for some sort of a common purpose, that you exist for a common reason. Taking some sort of action, again, noting that, okay, we can all together sit in this room and come up with the idea that, we, that some, there's, there's something the 35 of us all agree on, but if, if at the end of the day, all we do is kind of establish that we have this norm twice a week for 75 minutes where we, we, we come together and we agree that this is a problem, 
we agree that we all like each other, but we don't actually do anything about solving the problem, then we really haven't moved the ball forward at all. So the notion that we have to actually take some action is important in moving towards some sort of positive outcome or positive change. So I think that this is kind of an easy shorthand to think about leadership. Okay, we have to think about who are the people, what is it that we care about, and what is it that we're actually going to do to improve the situation. So before we can do any of this, though, we have to figure out what it is that we actually want to do, you know, leading towards what is our vision, as it were. Connor, who's cited in the chapter that you wrote, that you read for today, the worst chapter, is actually a really good strategist on vision. He's got this really nice quote that I like to use when we start thinking about the importance of vision or what it is that we want to do. And is that leadership defines what the future should look like, aligns people with that vision, and inspires them to make it happen despite the obstacles. So, you know, as we come together as a, as a group and we talk about the importance of values and mission, it's really knowing what it is that we want to be at the end, knowing what our positive outcome, what that positive goal is at the end of the day. So vision becomes very important for an organization and especially for a leader to help define what that goal is. So everybody know who this guy is? Who's this guy? Which George Bush? George H.W. Bush, who according to Instagram is voting for Hillary Clinton, if you've been paying attention to the news recently. So this is George H.W. Bush. He was vice president of the United States from 1980 to 1988, before he was elected president for one term. Before that, he had served as the director of the CIA. I think he was a congressman from Texas at one point. He was a World War II hero, youngest fighter pilot in World War II uh, when he started. He was a captain of the baseball team at Yale, married to the same woman for 60 plus years, has I think five kids, lost one in, in youth. So uh, by all accounts, you could measure that he has been a very successful person in his life. And he's really been able to accomplish a lot of things. But when he was gearing up to run for president in 1988, people really had a difficult time relating to him. There's this, Brad might remember this, but there's this famous scene where he actually went through a grocery store, you know, and he, and he, he was baffled by how you actually pay for the groceries and the conveyor belt. So people thought that he had a difficult time connecting with, with the common person because he had, you know, somewhat, somewhat of a, a rather privileged life. At the, at the same point, he didn't do a very good job of articulating what it was that he wanted to do, why he wanted to be president, other than the fact that he was eminently accomplished and had been pre serving as vice president for the previous seven years, people said that he really struggled. So I'm going to read a, a quick quote from Time Magazine about this January 26, 1987, where they're talking about the dilemma that President, vice, then Vice President Bush was facing. Colleagues say that while Bush understands thoroughly the complexities of issues, he does not easily fit them in to larger themes. This has led to the charge that he lacks vision, something that really rankles him. Recently, he asked a friend to help him identify some cutting issues for next year's campaign. Instead, the friend suggested that Bush go alone to Camp David for a few days to figure out where he wanted to take the country. Oh, said Bush, clearly exasperated, the vision thing. The, the friend's advice certainly did not impress him. So he was really struggling with this notion of what is the vision. And you know, his friend was trying to counsel him. But if you're gonna actually be elected to be president, you have to articulate why you want to be president, but more so, where you think the country needs to go in these next four years and how you're gonna get them there. So this notion is really important of having a vision and thinking through what it is that you actually want to do, what that outcome is that's desired for you. So more personally, what I'd like you to do on your paper is in that next box on the page, is to think about what the vision is for Project U. What if you know, you consider that dilemma, what would be the positive outcome, the positive solution that you seek to that dilemma that you're facing. All right, so we're starting to make some progress. You all are 
leading by action right now. You've identified a problem that's happening in your life, and you've started to identify what the positive outcome would be. What, you know, what is it that you're actually wanting to achieve? So we're going to spend a couple more minutes here kind of diving in a little bit more. Anybody familiar with Simon Sinek, by chance? Brandon? Who's, who's Simon Sinek? He became a big name through a TED Talk that he gave about creating a vision and changing the way people brand themselves and look at things to be able to be successful. Yeah, how many of you are familiar with TED Talks? Okay, it's like almost, almost everybody. So for those of you who aren't, TED Talks, uh, TED is an organization that holds uh, small like programs, conferences, where they get people to come together and share ideas and either you know their own lived experience or research that they've done, and they capture these, and there's a whole website, TED.com of which Simon Sinek is one of the most viewed tech talks in history. I think he's got more than 28 million views for his 18-minute video called Start With With Why. And I'm going to kind of just summarize what he talks about and how it relates to vision really quick. So his notion of Start With Why is anchored, anchored on this principle of what he calls the golden circle. Basically the notion that all things must begin by thinking about the why and that our actions and how we choose to go about doing things emanate from the why. And this is, you know, a little bit different than what people tend, traditionally tend to think about almost reflexively in leadership, which is, here's a problem, what am I going to do about it? As opposed to actually thinking about what are some other things that come into play. Why am I actually concerned about this? Why do I actually care to take action? Why is this something that matters to me? Why do we want to make these choices? So the notion of thinking about why we want to do something, why this problem matters, as opposed to just simply thinking about, here's a problem, what am I going to do to solve it? Does that make sense? So it kind of begins to flip that script, and, and you start to look at the why as the values that we hold dear, the values that the organization exists upon, the values, you know, if you're a nonprofit, you get into mission creep a, lot, a little bit? Yeah, so, you know, why we exist, and then you think about mission creep, which is when organizations begin to start doing things outside of their defined scope or reason for existing, and they start making different choices, and that's when they start to go out on the limb, and if they start to get too far away, they begin to become exposed, and, and that's where problems set in, because they're not getting to be too far from why they exist. Well, in leadership, it's the same thing. If we identify what our, our values are, our choices become a lot easier. It becomes a lot easier to figure out how we're going to go about doing things. So if we value, just on a very basic level, if we value kindness, if we value being, being friendly, how we go about things is we're generally going to probably be very kind and friendly and open and polite. And what we're going to do is we're probably going to introduce ourselves in a room somebody to a stranger. We'll be willing to stop and see if there's somebody if somebody's in need. We'll stop and ask them, are you okay? Is there something I can help you with? Because that would be an alignment with our value of being kind and friendly. So how we're going to do things is actually be friendly. I'll use a more specific example. So uh, the office I lead in, in, in SPIA, the undergraduate programs office, it exists to support students who are SPIA majors in their academic career. We do this in, uh, so uh, the why is we exist to really just to support and assist and to help and to nurture SPIA students throughout the time that they're with us in the school. So you are here and if you're a SPIA student or you're just an IU student in general, you've come to, to complete an Indiana University degree. If you're a SPIA student, you've come to do that within SPIA. The primary driver for what you're going to do that is by taking our courses and completing our courses successfully. My office then exists to support you in doing that. So if the why of my office is to support you, uh, how we do that is by trying to be an engaging, inclusive, friendly, information-rich uh, environment. So that if a student has an issue or a question or concern, they can come to us and they can ask us. They will actually be supported. 
What we do then is we have academic advisors. We have recruiters who talk about this SBA and actually try to recruit students to school. Uh, we have advisors who are willing to sit with you and meet with you to help you figure out what classes you're going to take. We have student engagement professionals who help bring student organizations and do leadership programs like our Washington Leadership Program or Professional Development Internship. Those are the what of what we do. How we do it is by, again, going back, it's by making sure we have all these resources available to you. Why? It's simply to exist to support students. Does that make sense? Start looking at an organization through that, through that lens. Why are we here? How do we go about our work? And then what are the specific actions that we are going to do? So all of it, though, is kind of predicated off this why, this notion of values. So what are some other examples of values? What is a value? What are some examples of values that you might have that you hold here? Yes, and Okay, this is really personal. Sure, go for it. Oh. Safe space here. We want to hear. Value that I hold is purity. Okay. Uh, thank you, that's a great example. What's another maybe personal value that you might have? Yeah, Jordan. Honesty. Honesty, all right, now we're starting to go. What's another value that you might hold? Yeah, Hannah. Um, loyalty. Loyalty, okay. I gave the example of kindness, friendliness, other, some other examples of values. Common ones, you know, achievement, you might value actually a competitive athlete, you know, winning the competition. You might value your family. You might value justice. Yeah, you think about the, what's going on in the world, and there's, there's a lot happening. Uh, is it all just? How do we how do we work to make a more just, caring, thriving world? You might value kindness, wealth, money, faith. You might value wisdom. You might value peace. You might value wealth, health. Those are all examples of values. But everybody has their own values, their own belief systems that emanate from either things that you've learned and things that you've observed in your life, or things that your parents taught you, or things that you learned in school when you were in kindergarten. So we all have, have our own values, which should help guide our actions. You start thinking about that in an organization and organization's values, and you know, this is a nonprofit leadership class. A nonprofit organization often exists to solve social problems. So what, are, what is the you know, social problem they seek to, seek to solve, uh, and what are the values that they hold dear? So you think about those in that lens. So now flip over your page, you have your worksheet, and you're going to start thinking about some of the values of Project U. So what I'd like you to do in that top box is to start thinking about the values. You can just kind of drop, jot down, because you're going to write a mission statement here in a second. Write down the values that guide you as a person, or that would guide Project U. All right, before we transition into the, the next part, which is relationships, we're going to just kind of think about what we've already done so far. So as the leader of Project U, you have already identified the issue that you're facing. So we have, uh, if leadership is an activity and it's forcing communities to face their problems, we have identified a problem, and we're going to figure out how to face it. You've identified what the positive goal is, you have a vision, you have a marker to which you're going to push forward to. So now we have a problem identified, we have a vision articulated, and now as we start to figure out what our solution is going to be to that problem, we've identified our values. So hopefully we're going to make a values-based or values-directed or mission-directed plan to solve our problem. Make sense? So far so good? All right. So we're going to have to talk about this, starting to get this, this messy work, thinking about relationships. In my class, I teach a, we do a whole unit on emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence charges us to think about three different consciousnesses. The consciousness of context, i.e. what is the environment that we are working in, what is the situation in which we're dealing with. The consciousness of self, how we manage our emotions, how we manage our responses to situations, how we prepare ourselves to be successful, how we you know, manage our own self-esteem. And the third consciousness is consciousness of others. This is when we start to get into this activity piece, you know, how do we coach others? How do we influence others? How do we display empathy towards others? How do we manage relationships and demonstrate citizenships? All these different things, they're predicated on the ability to develop relationships. So we, for the purposes of this class and what I use, we define developing relationships as first, 
creating meaningful connections with others, i.e., you know, actually getting to know the other people who are a part of our organization. How many of you are involved in some sort of a club or organization? Okay, how many of you see people there on a regular basis and you might only know their name and you don't know anything else about them? So, okay, that, that's common. I mean, you know, you can think about the confines of this class. Twice a week you come together, you spend 75 minutes with this group of people. You might get to know, unless you're doing group work, you might only get to know the people who are immediately sitting around you or the people in your group. Oftentimes we share spaces with people and we don't take that next step to actually engage with them. We just notice that they're there and that's fine. You know, guys, we have so much other things going on in our own life. So actually being intentional about creating a meaningful connection with others. Building a network then of trusting relationships, and so not just getting to know each other, but actually beginning to trust each other and to work together. And then having the interest and the willingness to actually nurture and grow these relationships. So again, if you're thinking about being a leader of an organization and you've been put into a specific role and you're asked to do things, it becomes important to develop and nurture relationships with those individuals so that they can trust you. One is the person responsible for either that aspect of the organization or if you're in a position of leadership, like a president or vice president of that organization, the people actually will trust you and they will feel confident in, in you and that you can trust them. And then there's kind of this reciprocal reality here with the relationships. So with leadership then as an activity, it requires us to intentionally work with and influence individuals and groups to bring about positive change. So what I would like you to take a moment to do is to think about on that next box, what are the key relationships that you need to steward and cultivate to make your vision become a reality. Who are the, the maybe the different stakeholders related to this dilemma? Right, I want you to do two things. First is to identify them, just you know, list the maybe three or four people. And then on the right, I want you to uh, assess that relationship. Is the status of your relationship good? Is it great? Is it maybe kind of average? Or is it not so good? Okay, so to this point, I haven't really asked you to process your dilemma because some of you might be doing some really personal stuff and others might be doing something a little more surface level that you don't want to talk about. But I want to talk together about this particular part, this relationship part. As you were thinking about the people that were involved in helping you solve this dilemma, what was your immediate feeling? Actually trying to think about these folks. That's, that's great. So you might not even know. Uh, it's, it's not even knowing who are the right people. So that's, that's a, a dilemma into it itself, is identifying who are the right people to help me with this problem. Quickly, I can tell you that the Career Development Office would be a really good resource. We don't know who the people are in there. I can yeah. give you more specific names. But you're starting with the Career Development Office and saying, hey, I'm a nonprofit agent. I'm trying to find an internship that is starting there. Other ones, other, other thoughts. As, as you're thinking about relationships, what's going through your mind? Yes, so show me. Mine was an internship thing too. Like the struggle is that like I might think that I like met these people from this like, organization. And, like I thought like we hit it off, like it was good. Like, I like them, but like they might be differently of me, I guess. You know when I like go to apply. Gotcha. So, you, so you've met some people at an organization, yeah, and you felt like it was a positive interaction, but you're not sure if they had the same right. response, and, and when you go to apply, you're, you're just nervous yeah. about it. So, so you're feeling, as you're thinking about these relationships, maybe a little bit of anxiety, or is that fair? Okay, gotcha. Thank you, thank you for sharing other thoughts you start thinking about these relationships. Yes? Um, I think um, on like a more like introspective level, I thought maybe like I need to build my relationship with myself better, like getting to know like what I, like what exactly this like thing, exactly this project, like maybe I need to get, really think about like what I want to do and kind of be more introspective rather than not, I suppose. So what I'm, what I'm interpreting from it is that you were starting to think about having these conversations with other people you were thinking to yourself, I need to be a little bit more clear about what it is that I want to do. Is that is that right? Sort of, I mean, like I seem to like explore. Like I think a lot of times, like I don't think 
before I do things and submit anything. That's like a general statement. That's it. Sorry, this, this is what college is all about, helping us learn how to think before we do things. Yes, thank you very much. Anybody about one more? Yeah, Anastasia. Okay, I wrote down two dilemmas, but they all play in one. One of my dilemmas was communication, and I thought, because I have a career that I'm going after, and it's like acting and modeling, uh -huh. and I have to choose whether I'm going to finish school or what, you know. And <clears throat> I was thinking, like, okay, with my agent, it's average. Because it's like, if I tell my agent a certain thing, it's like, it may limit my career. And then I thought about, like, my best friend. She's more spiritual, my family, they're more forward in communication, so it's... Okay, so you start thinking about the role that communication is going to play in, in these relationships, because you've got multiple dilemmas, but communication is a theme that's coming in. Okay, thank you. That's this, this is the, we're starting to get into the work of it. It's really easy to figure out what's wrong, right? I mean, it's really easy to walk into somebody else's house and find out, you know, hey, they don't really clean. You know, when's the last time they picked weeds? We can pick out problems really quickly. You know, that's really easy. So that was the first thing that we started to think about was the dilemma. We can all download a lot of problems really fast. I think it becomes a little bit more difficult to actually think about how we're going to solve it. What is like? What does the positive resolution look like? Or if we're doing it for other people, it's always really easy to help correct somebody else's. Problems. Okay, you've got this issue. I think you should do this. You know, and there's the positive outcome. So I think it's a, it's a little different. Then we start looking at the values, and that you know, it is clarifying what it is that we we hold dear, and it starts to help maybe crystallize a little bit. But now, as we start getting into the how, I think that the how is really this relationship piece is, is the how we're going to do things. It's a lot of it's where we're really starting to get into the work. We can really clarify what it is, why we exist, and why we want to do things, and what type of person we want to be. You know, the values that are going to guide our life. And when we start thinking about how we're actually going to do that and in the role that it takes in incorporating and working with other people it starts to get a, a lot more tricky so I think of relationships as the how of the golden circle as a, as a view of looking at things okay so actions then this is the the what of leadership and we're gonna we've got a little bit of a brainstorm activity we're gonna do here in, in a second which we start thinking about the necessary action steps but in your reading that you did for uh, today near the, near the end on page 119 Potter lays out eight steps to to the change process and before he gets to the grid laying out the eight steps he talks about the you know common dilemmas or, or some real issues and challenges in, in sort of leading change and so he's got these eight steps and I think what's most important about what he says in that reading is that before you can go through and do all these things you have to actually get one right so these are sequential and you have to foreclose on one before you move on to the other so if you're going to think about taking action and actually making something happen the first thing you have to do is establish some sort of a sense of urgency why does this matter and why does this matter right now and you have to it has to be you have to get people to buy into that so which is the second point so establishing this the sense of urgency uh, establishing that this is something that we actually have to deal with and we need to be dealing with it now he talks about then you move into creating a guiding coalition so inherently uh, any problem that uh, is larger than just you requires you to have to work with other people so that guiding coalition can just be getting uh, a few key stakeholders within your organization to buy into the sense of urgency it could be just if it's a relationship driven one if you and your partner are figuring out and saying this is something that's a problem how are we going to work on it together so now we are together in this as a coalition we are, we are coalesced together trying to solve this issue developing the vision and strategy this positive outcome where is it that we want to go. So we've, we've started to do this in the class. We've created a sense of urgency by identifying your dilemma, and we have talked about what that positive outcome is, developing a vision and strategy. Now, communicating the change process. This is the relationship part. This is where we're starting to talk about other people, what it is that the vision is, and what it is that we're actually trying to accomplish. Powering broad-based action. Again, 
we're still in the relationships piece, getting people empowered and giving them some agency and action over certain aspects of that bigger, bigger vision. Generating short-term wins. We're going to focus on this here in a second, but what are the things that we can do if we just do this one thing right away, this is going to start to build momentum to actually make this happen. Consolidating gains and producing more change, consolidating all of those small wins. So if you're thinking about this in the organization, all of the people who are doing their small wins, and you're starting to make some gains and some inroads, and then anchoring new approaches in the culture. Getting what it is that you have just solved and helping shift the culture to thinking about a positive view of things. So anchoring these new approaches in the culture and shifting the way in which we go about doing things. For the purposes of these next few minutes, we're going to focus on empowering broad-based action and generating some some short-term wins. Okay, so we, we, we got uh, the next box you have in solving your dilemma is action planning. Actions must be guided by and aligned with our values. So that you, when, as you start to think about these small wins, tasks, and people, which I'll define for you in a second, you know, I'd encourage you to look back up at the top of that page and think about the values. Because ideally, organizations and people are making choices and taking actions that are aligned with your values. If you value doing really well in school, an action that not studying does not align with that. Going out regularly late at night and sleeping, sleeping in in the morning and not going to class does not align with your value of being a good student. So that's just to kind of exasperate the point. So ideally, you are taking actions that are guided by and aligned with your values. Small wins are those immediate progress points that help us generate momentum. So you might have, with your dilemma, it could, you may have identified that uh, I need to strengthen this relationship. The first thing you could do is call that person. Send a text. You know, so that, that's an example of a simple small win. If you're trying to seek out the strengthening a, a relationship, you know, making that first step, that's a small win. Initiatives, these are the broad areas we want to address. So in our instance, the, what we're doing today, the initiative is your dilemma. This is the big piece area that you're trying to, to address with your action plan. And then you have specific tasks. These are the very specific things that you have to do. So what I want you to start thinking about here is what would be a small win for you to move you forward in achieving your dilemma. What are the specific tasks that you need to do? We've already talked about um, some people, these key relationships. So if, you, if there are some key relationships that you just identified in the box above that maybe aren't that good, thinking about how important it is that you improve the quality of those relationships. The last key piece that happens with action planning is, is doing some sort of assessment. So when you've achieved the end goal, did, that, did your strategy actually work? I'm taking a moment to assess that. So what I'd like you to do is work on this specific box down at, at the bottom. Necessary action steps for project you to achieve its positive outcome. Thinking specifically about what that small win is. What is that immediate thing you That maybe what are two, three, or four tasks that you can do over these next few weeks to move you forward towards achieving that dilemma. Who are the key people? And you probably just identified them. And how would you assess that? How would you know that you actually did a good job? All right, it looks like most people are done right. So let's talk about what we've done over the last uh, 55 minutes or so. You, as the leadership of Project U, has identified an emerging issue that's facing your organization that really needs to be addressed right away. You've identified the, your desired positive outcome. You've identified your vision, what it is that you want to, to strive for, what it is you want to be. You've identified the core values that guide your work. You've identified the key relationships necessary to leverage and achieve the desired outcome. And you've identified the small wins and action steps to achieve the goals. I bet none of you thought you were going to solve the big hairy problem this morning when you got up and came to class, did you? All right, so let's talk about this for a couple minutes. You know, you know you, to the extent that you're comfortable sharing your dilemma and whatnot, I'd, I'd be curious. What, what did you? What do you think of this process? We've, we've kind of gone through what organizations go through all the time when they have big issues and, and, and challenges on kind of a personal level. What, what, did, what did you think of this? Do you, you think you've actually solved the problem? You know, you have a, 
framework to do it, or not so much? What are, what are some thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, my dilemma is that I'm trying to get a job after I graduate, and so now I kind of have an idea of what I'm going to do by like, texting people who may have connections with uh, organizations that I want to work with, like the career development office, and kind of continuing to make connections and yeah, relationship, especially, I'm sure, how many of you had some sort of job-related or internship-related dilemma that you're facing? So, uh, a good number, a good number, a burning issue uh, on the minds of college students. Yes, that's exactly right. So, uh, a lot of it is, is the relationships piece, and, and uh, you know, just in a very pragmatic sense, so many of you raise your hand on that, you're making sure that you have an updated, accurate LinkedIn profile, and that you're uh, checking in regularly. A key relationship for all of you is going to be the individuals in our career development office that have met drop-in services to pop in and talk about resume workshops or uh, how to leverage LinkedIn or, or networking with folks. I think about networking with the people that you already do know. Oftentimes, a lot, a lot of the solutions that we seek or the people we need to know already exist in our network. We just haven't taken the steps to engage with them. And part of that is just engaging and even connecting with the people who you're closest with. We do that socially in Facebook and follow them on Twitter, but uh, it's a different lens when you get into LinkedIn. It's a little bit more of a professional lens and the profile you put forward is a little bit different. So, so there's a lot of key relationships, especially that. Thank you. That was a good example. So some other thoughts. Yeah, Jordan. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat. It, it's just really helpful to like, actually write down the steps. You know, because when you think about just getting a job, it's pretty easy to just get like lost in not task-oriented actions. So just having it down is a great place to start for me. Yeah. You know, they used to be a CEO of General Motors, and before I came to hire, I used to work for uh, General Motors. And he said, that plan is just an idea until you write it down. And actually trying to get it on paper and committing to what it is that you're trying to actually do. So this, this mental exercise of writing down what our values are is, you know, we might think about that in dilemmas like, this doesn't feel good, it's because I like to do X or Y, but when we actually stop and write down our values, it helps kind of clarify. And goals and actions become a lot more clear when we think about why we want to do things or why we want to get a job or what organizations we want to work with. You know, things become a little bit more clear. All right, so. Um, as we think about this, so we got a few more minutes left, so we're going to kind of land the plane here on leadership. So you've all done an activity over the last hour that is essentially leadership. Trying to figure out and force yourself to confront the problem and identifying the things that you need to do, the people that you need to talk with, the vision that you have to try to articulate, and thinking about the values um, that are going to guide the decisions that you make. Those are really hard things to do by yourself, right? So imagine that trying to do that within an organization. So what we've tried to give you is a framework for thinking about ways that you do it, but tackling tough problems is the end of leadership. Like, like, that's what it's supposed to do. We're supposed to tackle these tough problems. But actually doing it is the work of leadership. It's an essence. So it's actually taking the time to create a vision, to think about why and clarify why we as an organization exists. That's why uh, if you've been a part of an organization and you've had leadership retreats or weekend retreats where you had to all get together and you know, actually try to get to know each other and think about why is it that we're here together and what is it that we're actually trying to accomplish, and then you start thinking about what are the things that we have to do on a day-to-day -day basis. We talked briefly about assessment, but actually holding yourself accountable and holding the people in your organization accountable to the things that you want them to do. How are we actually going to make these things happen? You know, so leadership, and I hope that you see from the way we talked about it today, is that everybody has an opportunity to be a leader because you all have agency over the problems and dilemmas that you face in your, in your life. And it's then taking that next step out and taking, identifying what are the actions that you're going to take, what are the relationships that you're going to cultivate, and how are you going to get people together to 
actually dive into that a little bit more and try to actually solve those problems. Does that make, make sense? So what I have tried to do in the last 60 minutes is what it takes me 16 weeks to do uh, in, in class, but you know, we, we dive a little bit more deeper into each of these elements. But essentially, right, so if we go back to the very beginning, I, I mean, leadership is essentially, uh, it's a lot of things, but I really value this notion that it is an activity and that it is something that we do and it, 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 it challenges us to, to identify problems but then to get our community to face the problems. And that community is defined by the organization you're in or the relationships that you're a part of, but actually identifying problems and then being willing to work together to uh, identify solutions and move those things forward. So I hope this was a helpful activity for you and it was time well spent, but it is absolutely a microcosm of what you would do within an organization, um, to, to, especially successful ones, to actually stop and think about why we do things, why we exist, before thinking about what it is that we're going to do. All right?